families is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. We have a guest, a friend, a sister of mine, Shauna Murray Brown. Thank you for coming to be with us on In Search of Black Power. All the time, anytime. Yeah. Tell the people about yourself and your work. Uh, so my name is Shauna Murray Brown. Yes, I am trained as an integrative psychotherapist, went to school to be a social worker, but my work is around helping our people remember how to heal themselves. Um, that looks different and has looked different over the course of the years. I started first in working in human service in the human service sector, child welfare, um, and research, uh, juvenile detention, um, clinical mental health, and, and residential treatment, and then shifted to holding healing space for black folks in the city of Baltimore through initiatives like the Heal Sister Project, Heal and Be More Activists. And now, you know, what I do after holding and offering my own um, mental health practice is I train therapists on what it means to decolonize therapy for black folk. Um, I consult um, human service and philanthropic institutions around basically how to make it a space where black folks aren't harming themselves in the environments. And um, my research really focuses on remembering how black folks have historically healed. Mm. So, you know, what's what's been, you know, one of the many things that's been cool about, you know, just our friendship and relationship over the years is that, you know, in a lot of ways, there's certain areas that we specialize in. And there are ways that there's overlap there that I feel like there, you know, I don't find that there's enough conversation about. So, you know, when we talk about like colonialism, the system of white supremacy, you know, particularly on this program and many of the programs on the Black Power Media channel. You know, there's a lot of conversation about these systems and how they're oppressive in terms of, you know, how they impact our community. One of the things, though, that I think is important, um, and you mentioned in your background, is in terms of, you know, doing therapy, you know, talking about things that have to do with our wellness. If you could talk, and, and, and me knowing that you're clear about, you know, all the systems and the, mm-hmm. and the way that the society operates, you know, just giving a sense of from that vantage point, um, how would you describe the impact that colonialism has on, you know, our individual wellness yeah. and then just on us collectively as, as, you know, people of African descent? Yeah, and I'll, I always like to start when I'm talking about colonialism to just make sure that folks are clear, right, that we're talking about settler colonialism as a project, right? It is not one thing that happened at a time. It's an ongoing mm-hmm. event. And oftentimes when we talk about colonialism, at least in the broader spectrum, not on black power media, but everywhere else, mm-hmm. we're centering um, indigenous people of this land. But seldom are we talking about the fact that we, black people, descendants of Africans, enslaved, and our people across the globe, that we are indigenous. Mm-hmm. Not to this land, mm-hmm. but we indigenous people displaced. And so when, we, when I like to start there because the impact of colonialism on the individual really on us as black people really has to do with the fact that we were the currency, right? Mm -hmm. That when you think about the process of like buying a property today, that it was the the practice uh, 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 of the enslavement of our people that set the the stage and the the, we were we were the currency during that time. We Mm -hmm. were we were the ones that uh, barbarians were putting mortgages on, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so when you take that from a historical context and you bring it into modern time, the way it looks for us and for the and for our people, is that we have an issue with our own self-worth, right? Mm. Like we have a horrible relationship with money, with the context of, of, of exchange. Um, and we because of that dehumanization overall of first being on this on this land as an object and not as a human being, we internalize that. Mm. We've internalized it to the point where we're like, we, so in some ways we work alongside it and we work alongside it by saying, okay, well, if I'm not a human being, how many things can I acquire to be more like the barbarian that brought me here mm-hmm. so that I can make myself human, right? Mm. And and so, so that's one part. The other, um, going deeper there is like our relationship with capitalism. We can talk about internalized capitalism, right? This notion that we only matter to the extent that we're able to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reality is that in our sort of fight for or quest for the bag, um, trying to make ourselves more meaningful because we don't um, inherently tend to hold a space of worthiness, we don't have a relationship with land. We don't have a relationship with this land or the lands that we might have been taken from. We don't have a solid understanding of really who we are. Even those of us that study history, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like we study history, but it may, be not, may not feel as personal as we'd like it to. Mm-hmm. And so it's this distant connection. Like I don't really understand like my, my, my grandma and them. Like even for me, I remember in trying to address this issue, I went to Egypt, I studied ancient Kemet, right? I went to Nigeria, but I didn't contend with what is the lineage of my people right here, right? Mm. In, in such a way that I almost dehumanized my own ancestors mm-hmm. by damning um, or dismissing and disconnecting myself from this land. And so then when we talk about how this shows up collectively, well, then it blows up, right? Because we don't, not only do we not have trust within ourselves because we, um, I still have to heal from that dehumanization. We have a, a powerfully difficult time of cultivating genuine trust, um, coalition, um, and power together. We don't mm-hmm. trust each other. Um, we are really upholding the colon- colonizer's imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Because we are fighting for resources that the colonizer has dangled as opposed to identifying and defining how we're going to move differently. Mm. Collectively, um, we because we don't have a relationship to the land, um, our concept of success is by how flashy we look, right? Mm-hmm. And that only. Um, I mean, and I, I would say that those are a real. That's a good like entry point to all of the things that I know we're going to keep talking about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things you talked about just now was around the way in which our self worth. Um, the, the the challenges that that Black folks collectively have with self worth is an outgrowth of colonialism and its impact on our community and um, both the introduction and and what you just talked about you know there's certainly a spiritual element to that you know in terms of and 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 I think you know for a lot of folks who are studying you know revolutionary political activity um, you know there's often a skepticism. Um, around spirituality, um, in some contexts, as people see it as a, that obscures material struggle. Um, so, but in but in the context of Black people's struggle for freedom, spirituality has been an essential element. Yeah. 
And it's one of the things I often push back. You know, some people who are historians of revolutionary struggle for black folks, it's easy to omit that, given just, a, you know, some of the larger academic institutions and, you know, pop culture renderings of it. Um, if you could talk about um, both in terms of specific examples and more generally the spiritual dimensions of revolutionary struggle. Yeah, I, I would add then to that first question to bring us here is that in the effort of dehumanizing our people, you know, we our spiritual notions, our cultural um, ethic was beaten out of us. And then we were given like this sort of alien sort of way of existing and communing with the earth, ourselves, and spirit. And in, in that, our worldview was all messed up, right? Mm -hmm. So now, you know, and, you know, we often talk about the, the European worldview if we study anything about like black psychology, African-centered social work, African psychology, African, just anything about our culture, we understand that the focus on the tangible is a purely European value base, right? Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean that we should not be considering the tangible, but if we're grounded from an African center perspective, then we would find value both in the both and. So that mm. is the things that we can see and the aspects that we can't see. And that's where spirituality comes in. Mm. I like to tell people that, you know, in my own journey, to these notions, to these considerations, like going from being a mental health provider to deciding that this is some real white way of providing mental health, like this ain't gonna work. Mm -hmm. I had to ask myself the question, where, wh when and where did we ever win, <laughs> right? Um, and recognizing that the freedom struggle, I like to consider freedom to be an uh, individual experience, but our, but liberation is that where all of us have access to or have, have, have a sense of black power. So, you know, I had to look at, okay, IET or Haiti, right? Mm -hmm. We got to look at Cuba. And no, I don't want nobody, you know, commenting mm -hmm. in the chat about, you know, the, the, the struggles that both Cuba and Haiti currently experience, but we cannot omit those realities, those experiences where in Cuba it's, it's Palo Mayombe as a spiritual tradition that was utilized, right, specifically to support an actual liberation um, journey. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in um, in Haiti, it's mm -hmm. Haitian Vodun, right? Mm -hmm. um, and these and these traditions are not, while they are different, they have a relationship. But one of the underlying things that's true of both of these is that the ethic is completely different, right? Mm -hmm. The ethic here is how are we going to get free again, mm -hmm. right? These were spiritual traditions of uh, uh, enslaved Africans on what would be considered then as foreign land. Mm -hmm. How can we use our technologies from the continent and uh, root them here? And just real quick, I want to yeah. highlight just for those who are listening, you know, we're talking about examples where black people won. Yeah. You know, and I think that's important because when we talk about like formulas for what it things we should borrow from our history, you know, the Asian Revolution as just one of the two examples you gave is important in understanding that chattel slavery as a system, the the dominoes that set that in motion in terms of the ending of that was the Asian Revolution. So if we're gonna study it and too often what we see is the academic you know, what often gets attributed to the Haitian Revolution is the French Revolution and mm -hmm. Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So I feel like what you're about to lay out is important for our listening audience to know that the source of the Haitian Revolution, that comes from our people 
and the spiritual technologies that emerge from it. Period, right? Like, and, and, and it's also super interesting because it's like, I had to go through a long well of space to be even get to the question of, oh, so how are our people healing and what? how are we reclaiming our own mindset and our behavior? And we didn't do it, we could not do it. We have never won without the incorporation of our spiritual technology. Mm -hmm. The tangible alone ain't gonna get us to win. We've been doing this for a long time, y'all. Like, mm -hmm. it ain't. <laughs> it ain't doing what it needs to do. And so when we're talking about the importance of it, um, we have to contend with the fact that, like, the ethic is different. And so that, that's what I want to talk about. So oftentimes, you know, many of us, I knew I grew up Baptist Christian. You know, these are Abrahamic traditions that were forced upon our people. Mm -hmm. And that isn't to say that there aren't other iterations of Christianity in other parts of the world that might be more pure. But here, uh, in these United States of America, Christianity was not something that, that our people came with, mm -hmm. right? And, and so when we talk about Haitian Vodun and we talk about Palo Mayombe, and we, if we talk also about the African spiritual tradition of hoodoo that were, had a, a, a nice little uh, uh, play with Christianity, all of these are liberatory spiritual technologies. So that means it was, it was not taboo for us to do our prayers specifically to figure out how can we ensure that massa gets killed. Um, how can I be fortified or what path might I need to take so that we can rent, win this particular rebellion? Um, it, how can I keep my mind right and my spirit right and my mm. body right so that these can be, um, we can find success on the other end? And, and so the value of our spiritual tradition is one, why only use tangible tools if we have those that are intangible? Why not commune with the land? Why not ask our ancestors and um, uh, entities that are related to the ever-presence of nature to guide us or tell us things that we can't see yet, right? Why not do those things? Mm. So um, for, for a lot of people that, again, that will be watching this, um, and you talked about how spirituality has been an essential, an essential agree, ingredient mm -hmm. in our revolutionary struggles for freedom. And I mentioned before that there are some people, and there's some examples, I would say, mm -hmm. of, of this, where the conversation about spirituality can obscure from the material. And, of course, you mentioned it's a both and. Um, you know, so, so when we talk about, like, revolutionary struggle, if you can talk about, you know, just for a little bit, like what, what, when we talk about revolutionary struggle and we talk about making sure that we're addressing the material conditions, um, how, what makes the spiritual traditions that you described capable of addressing the material in ways that maybe some approaches to African spiritual practices or rituals take away from it? Hmm. I think that if we're going to make it super concrete, if we get really clear about the lived experience of those of us that are that would consider ourselves working for black liberation or black power, we ain't well, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, generally speaking, if we acknowledge it, these spaces as a battleground, our, our mindsets aren't all there. 
when we are utilizing specific spiritual tradition, it allows us to sort of address um, what's happening in our mindset energetically. So that means if I'm trying, if I need to make a solid political decision, um, am I, I, I could think about it on my own or I can think about it on my own. I can consult with elders or um, teachers. So that's one aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Is the notion of it's not just me make Shauna Marie Brown doesn't make a decision on her own about what my next best step is, right? I'm going to consult with my godparents. I'm going to consult and, and they're going to support me in consulting with the spiritual tradition. And so that's a built-in level of accountability mm-hmm. and a level of grounding. Um, also, when we're doing that work, it also allows us an opportunity to gain access to our medicine, right? So medicine that's beyond just going to the therapist, mm-hmm. but what are some of the grounded activities that we need to do in order to regain our sense of self? You know, what we might consider or know as depression, anxiety, and the like, Sure, go and talk about it, but talk therapy alone, what we know does not um, do what what we needed to do for black and brown folks. We need some movement, right? We need some music. Uh, We need some some herbs. Uh, We need to actually get our feet in the earth and the ground. Um, And we need to have a holistic understanding of what's happening in the space. Mm -hmm. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. And and so, and that actually is a good segue because... um, you know, I would say that when we talk about politics and political struggles for freedom, that oftentimes, particularly, and I like how you concretized it, like the accountability that comes from mm-hmm. these spiritual practices, the awareness of your body and your own self and your own wellness, yeah. you know, and the approaches to our wellness that are more in line with nature and a different relationship to the world. So to me, I think that's that's material yeah. as well as spiritual. And when we think about many of the institutions that are tasked with, um, you know, addressing itself to our wellness, um, you know, one of the debates, you know, we're really critical of elements of the mainstream progressive left. And one of the major policies of the progressive left is around like Medicare for all. Right. Or just broadly like social programs. Mm -hmm. And so what you'll see, you know, a lot of progressive left, you know, political commentary is. Um, you know, universal pre-K, Medicare for all, a lot of these these systems that on the surface level, they're tasked with dealing with our wellness, but in fact are more toxic and do more harm than good. Yeah. And folks don't like to hear that, you know, because it complicates the, the, the policy argument that people want to make around expanding yeah. those kinds of programs. But I think what doesn't happen enough is, you know, really good explanation in public context as to how these institutions, you know, medical institutions, mental health institutions, behavioral health institutions, really describing how they do harm to individuals in the community. Yeah. So if you could expand a little bit on just the ways that institutions that have been tasked with our wellness, how they actually contribute to further colonialism and negatively impact the health and wellness of black people. Yes, I can. Um, so... Because I worked in multiple settings and environments, I'm, I can speak both from a, a practitioner's perspective and also as a person that has been advocating for my own family and my own self to be able to get what's necessary. One of the underlying things is central to the way that the medical industrial complex shows up in our day-to-day therapeutic exchange or our relationship with the doctors. Number one, 
its focus is, is on the individual. And that is only, so what is wrong with you? And what remedy, what medicine, poison, can I give you to make, you, to make this disappear? It's not getting to the root cause of the issue. And never, uh, will, well, now I won't say never because I'm training practitioners to do something different, but seldom, right, is there an acknowledgement that it's actually not anything wrong with the individual. It's the societal structures and experiences that have caused the mental, the mental health issue, right? Mm-hmm. So the issue isn't the individual. The issue is the society that is in existence. Mm-hmm. And so that then brings about a different objective, right? In the therapy milieu, right, um, in the early stages of my practice, the focus was how can we get them to be productive citizens? So let's just sit with that for a second. Mm-hmm. What is a productive citizen in the colonial or colonizer imagination? It is you just go to work, you um, you pay your taxes, uh, you don't you don't fight or argue with uh, the status quo, you're not making any noise at all, and then you continue to feed the the capitalistic interest, right? Well, that that actually harms us, right? Because it is creating a zombie-like relationship that the person receiving quote-unquote service is from the, the, the quote-unquote expert. So that's the first thing. The other is that it furthers a disconnection from the land, from our community, and um, from ourselves, right? So it's uh, the, all, and this is changing over time, or so they say, that this, this notion, especially in medical establishments, is that the, the doctor knows more than you about you. Well, that can't be true, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, how you gonna tell me what I'm feeling ain't what I'm feeling, right? Mm-hmm. How you gonna t- right? And we we can look at the data that also talks about like, oh, you know how many black folks uh, feel like they aren't actually being heard when they go and receive any medical uh, services, and and what we really know to be true is that essentially it should be also informed by an intuitive kind of aspect, right? Mm-hmm. So. They're seeding doubt of ourselves and what we think we know about ourselves. Um, we can also look all the way back to um, like the late, the early 1900s mm-hmm. of the, the <coughs> medical um, establishment and the creation mm-hmm. of mental health. Um, you know, the first, uh, I think it's the Central Lunatic Asylum um, for the Colored Insane that was initially uh, created. You know, the first folks that were placed into that, it could be that a black person was put into this insane asylum because they talked wrong to the police. Uh, this per- a person could be placed in an insane asylum because they were laying on the street and they didn't have any other place to go. Doesn't this sound eerily similar mm-hmm. to the carceral construct and systems that we have right now, or folks that might um, be struggling with homelessness and then get placed in a mental health um, institution as opposed to actually addressing the material condition? So it likes to focus on um, uh, almost a placebo uh, of sorts of, okay, well, we gave you something that should be that should be resolved. Mm. And then the last that I'll say uh, for now is even in the ways that we seek to, or taught to seek uh, to connect folks to other resources. The resources are in connection to other white institutions. So if I mm. work in a hospital as a hospital social worker, and this person is being discharged from the hospital, um, and I'm tasked with putting them in another therapeutic environment to make sure that I can cross my T's and dot my I's, 
um, the list of folks that I'm allowed to refer to tend to be other white institutions that cause the same level of harm. At no point is that practitioner, even if I'm a black social worker, and I am, right? Mm -hmm. Even as a black, a black practitioner, we are taught that we're not allowed to deeply care for the folks that we're serving. We have to actually dehumanize ourselves in mm -hmm. order to place ourselves above and over the person that we're serving. So I don't know what the local initiatives are for wellness, healing, um, and are, are are provided, and not only do I not know, I might not even be able to refer to those environments, um, and so it it uh, destroys the concept of the development of a communal or village-like base of healing that would be more aligned with our original ways of engaging. And just a real quick follow-up, because and I think like on the policy point that I've made, you know, before I ask you the question. Because it's not that we shouldn't get more access to services, but rather the nature of the services that exist and transforming them. And who is qualified, right? The qualification um, for a social worker, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a, um, for a therapist, a counselor, is that they went through what level of education. Sure, they got their master's degree and they had their undergrad degree and what? In European ideals of wellness mm. and the like, which is whitewashed wellness, which mm. is not interested in your actual healing. Mm. It's not interested in you regaining connection to your own community or regaining a, a sense of yourself as an African human being. It's how can I get you through this treatment plan so that I can simply disperse you? Um, and so that in and of itself, like these folks aren't actually qualified, right? Mm -hmm. The impact of colonialism on our collective is uh, we have a distortion about what wellness actually is anymore, right? Mm -hmm. We think wellness is, all right, I'm not crying, okay? You know, I'm able to walk and talk and work, right? Mm -hmm. Right, which draws a straight line from our historic traumatization right. of uh, chattel slavery, of being beaten, of, of having to work and work and work to, from sunup to sundown, which many of us, even the, uh, those of us that are activists and change makers are for black power, mm. we do it to ourselves, mm. right? It's been indoctrinated in us. To now, okay, so if that, that's what we're being taught in mental health care, a productive citizen. I'm being taught all of the, all of the theories that were used for, your, for white men, women, and children, and all of the theories that are based off of um, notions of our own inferiority, of, of dehumanization. You know, the, one of the first diagnoses for um, for uh, enslaved folks was drapetomania, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Or and it's another diastasis athopica. Drapetomania was the 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 illness of oh you running away and you want to be free. Dystasia athopica was mm -hmm. oh you tired. Mm -hmm. You don't want to work no more. What's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Oh, the way that I solve this problem is I either kill one of your family members in front of you or I beat you some more or I withhold more food from you. All things that, sadly enough, this is what was happening to us, was what's imposed upon us, which contributed to our dehumanization. But how many of us go however many hours not eating, mm -hmm. right? How many of us go however many hours knowing that we need to go to sleep but don't, mm -hmm. right? How many of us do, we do these things for, <laughs> why are you laughing, Dave? you getting at me, but that's all, that's all good. We just talked right, about right, it. Yeah. Right, we, we did, we did. Mm -hmm. But we, how, we do this to ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we feel like, well, it's worth it because we're working for the struggle. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that 
is also that we have maintained the colonizer's imagination. Again, mm. how many of us can even imagine what it would be like to be beyond the struggle, mm. right? What might liberation look like when we've arrived? Mm. Half, of, we can't, half of us don't even have access to that mm. because we're sleep deprived. We, we don't have access to uh, the spaciousness to be able to imagine something beyond it. Mm -hmm. And we need our spiritual practices. We need, you know, spaces of quiet in order to access it. Mm -hmm. And yes, the therapist might teach you some breathing techniques, but they won't teach you or hold the space for you to radically imagine black liberation. Mm -hmm. And that is what I believe is a, a, a therapy that actually liberates. Mm -hmm. So rounding this out, um, you know, you reference spiritual systems throughout the conversation. Yeah. Um, so if you could talk about both from the perspective of like spiritual practices, wellness practices, um, because I imagine a lot of black people who are going to watch this who do, you know, work and, you know, this stuff hasn't occurred to them, hasn't been mm -hmm. something that's been emphasized. So for those that want to incorporate some of this into their organizations or their institutions or programs, what are some quick examples for folks to incorporate? See, when, you, when I was preparing for this, I had a real long list. I'm going to see how much of it I can recall. I had to look down. Um, so when we're talking organizationally, one of the first things I think is super important is the fact that when in an African spiritual tradition, when we are born or reborn, right? So that means when we're born, if you are within a particular tradition, the child is given a name. But it's not just an arbitrary name. I mean, it's cool for us to name nice stuff, mm -hmm. right? But it's a name that is um, gifted um, through divination, through a communion with our ancestors or uh, uh, otherwise entities that can see things that we can't see. And it's an insight. It's like a message. This is what this child or this human being is here to do. These mm -hmm. are their specific gifts. You might be like, but Shauna, how is that relevant? I got you. So, so it's relevant because I think within our organizations, when we're thinking about the work that we do on a day-to-day -day and how we and the creation of uh, and sustainability of black institutions, how we identify roles for each person, that we it would be great if we had some, some divining done to identify, is this person working in their area of genius? Is this person working in alignment with what their ancestral lineage is informed that they would be best at, that will make it so that they feel rejuvenated when they're doing their work and otherwise? Or that would be a great tool. Even, you know, whatever kind of assessments that we want to do around, okay, we got this dope team. Is everyone working in their genius and only aligning folks in that way? Another, I think, you know, it depends on the ways in which we're working, but I think it's super important for us to to reorient this ethic of the difference with what it means to actually be fighting for liberation, right? We need to get super clear about what it is we're protecting and where we're trying to go. And a, a way to keep us, you know, keep us in a straight and narrow is to 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 ask for guidance from elders or peers, right? To develop a, I have, have like a informal um, actually, it's a little more formalized than before, but an informal or formalized um, council of elders or council of peers, right? It's one thing, you know, this, this, one of the things we have to be really careful about is to ensure that in the leadership in our organizations and in our interactions with other people that we are not negating folks' humanity, that we are not modeling what the colonizer has said is what leadership looks like in our black 
liberation-oriented organizations. And so one way to do that is to um, compose a council that holds you accountable or your organization accountable to liberatory efforts, right? Um, um, where you can con you can call on them if you or if you have a challenge that needs to be resolved. Um, another, I think, is centering wellness, right? Um, it is sort of you know, I, I, in many of the organizations that I work with, even those that are black led, we have a really hard time with you know. We'll say, okay, I'm gonna add something onto my plate. I'm gonna add this meditation time. I'm gonna add these workshops on. Mm -hmm our healing place, but we don't ever take anything off. We like to do everything because it feels like everything is on fire. But if we start to make decisions from the inside out, one, recognizing, well, what actually do I have the capacity to do? Not what are all of the things that are on fire right now that I would like to take out because we can't take them all out, mm -hmm. right? So not only doing and educating ourselves about wellness practices, but also how can we infuse it in a way where it becomes a part of the culture, the way that we engage. If we see uh, our brother or our sister um, that's not looking well, how are we huddling up around them <laughs> mm -hmm. to hold them accountable? How are we making it normal for folks to go on walks together, folks mm -hmm. to do meditation together, checking in on how their therapeutic um, experience with their new black therapist might be? Um, you know, doing those kinds of things are super important. And I think um, I, would, I would go as far to say that we're not doing liberation work if we are oppressing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially, you know, what I think would be required here. Mm -hmm. And then just lastly, um, or more of a follow-up, mm -hmm. the, you know, for a lot of organizations that are engaged in political work, who would hear, you know, your response in terms of centering wellness, for instance, um, and would and would be challenged by the notion that, you know, because I imagine some of them may say, um, you know, to the to the thing you mentioned earlier, people want to do everything. It's so much to do, you know, everything's on fire. Um, what are some of the things you would tell people who will take that perspective? Everything's on fire recognizing that, you know, there's only a limit to what you can do. Like, how would you counsel a person who just is consumed with that anxiety? Well, I would say, how much water can you carry, right? So if you have, you can carry, let's, let's say you just real, real strong, and you can, you can carry a real, real big bucket. It's you carrying this real, real big bucket, but the whole block is on fire. If you go throw this big bucket on the whole block, it's not going to do nothing, boo. Like literally nothing, right? But if you say, you know what? I see that there's a house over here. Um, there's a fire going on over here. I'm gonna start with this first house. And then you start to strategically organize you and folks and we're gonna do one house at a time. We're gonna diffuse it all at a time. It's strategic. Um, you have a, a, enough of a win where you're not going to get exhausted after the 50th time of you running to get some water. Mm -hmm. You have the space to be able to think, okay, what worked in getting the fire out on this house, now we can use those same strategies to be able to get some of the other houses down. And perhaps we can simultaneously have another person go in to get some more people to get more water to, or to figure out what's causing the fire in the first place. Mm -hmm. The thing is that if we are on fire on the inside, we're not going to be able to put nothing out on the outside, mm -hmm. right? Um, and also, too, you know, we I love for us to talk about lineage and and our legacy. 
if we just look at the stories of those that we know. I mean, you, you were mentioning, was it Carter G. Woodson? Mm-hmm. Pre, that where, where it was like Carter G. was sleepy? Uh, Charles Drew. Charles, Charles Drew, Drew was sleepy, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't listening to his body, was sleepy. Mm-hmm. And did what? He drove. It drove and died. Fell asleep. And That's fell right. asleep at the wheel, mm-hmm. right? So if we, the other thing that I would say is, I think we can think of many folks that made amazing impacts in our community that we cite today. Mm-hmm. Super important that we that we look at the holistic aspects of who they were as human beings. Mm-hmm. What was the material condition of their life? Were they happy? Were they well? Were they joyous? Yes, they did dope work. But if what can we learn from their actual life and not romanticize it? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, how can we make it such that we say, yeah, Charles Drew was dope. Mm-hmm. Charles Drew did all this work. And what I can learn from Charles Drew so that I can get all of the fire out, mm-hmm. right, is I actually need the sleep. Or I might mess around and, you know, find that I step in a wrong hole because I'm, I'm, I'm half sleep trying to take out the fire. Mm-hmm. No, we can all do better when we're well-rested and well-grounded. We need to mm-hmm. humanize the folks that we are um, learning from. Their yeah. whole life. All right. Well, appreciate you spending the afternoon with us. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> All right. <laughs>